I'm going to read now from Psalm 118. You might want to turn there if you've got a Bible, but it's only a few short verses I'm going to read, so you might prefer just to listen. Psalm 118 is a psalm of victory. It's a psalm that gives thanks and praise to God for his defeat of enemies. Uh, Verse 15 is, is typical of the psalm. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Uh, as you read through the Old Testament and you, and you come across this psalm of victory, it's easy to pair it with the, the many battles that God won on behalf of his people Israel. But of course, this side of Jesus Christ, uh, we've got a greater victory to look back upon. The victory of Jesus Christ defeating death and being raised from the dead. And so we can read this psalm in the light of those wonderful events, those mighty uh, things that God has done for us. I'm going to read verse uh, Verse 19 to 24. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you might choose to say those words along with me. Feel free to use the words of the version that you're using. Or else, uh, just listen to the words of the psalm uh, and consider what they call us to do. Verse 19. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Or we're going to come to God in a prayer of thanksgiving. We're going to enter uh, those gates of thanks. I've asked Alistair if he'd come and lead us in that prayer of thanks now. Let's uh, all come to God in prayer. Let's uh, pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can uh, gather together on this gloriously bright morning. Glorious not just because of the lovely sunshine outside, but uh, because it's the day that we remember most of all the Lord Jesus coming back to life, having died on the cross on Good Friday. We do thank you for the truth of that fact. We thank you that he rose again triumphant over death uh, in order that uh, all who trust in him might have salvation, might have forgiveness of sins, freedom from the slavery of sin. Uh, and can experience new birth for themselves, being born again through the Lord Jesus. How we praise and thank you for that this morning. We thank you for what we just read about those figurative gates of righteousness. We thank you that, again, because of what the Lord Jesus has done, we appear righteous in your sight, uh, and therefore we can enter your presence, the presence of the holy and almighty God. Uh, We thank you that this was achieved all through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, We're reminded again by those words we've just read that he was the stone that the builders rejected. He felt great rejection on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God the Father, your wrath placed on him against sin. He suffered the weight of of all of our sin on his shoulders as he hung there on the cross uh, and he was forsaken. But uh, we thank you for that glorious fact that he has now made the capstone, that he's now been exalted, lifted up, brought back to life again. Uh, and exalted and seated at your right hand uh, in heaven. We thank you that that 
demonstrates, again, your, your power over death and the forgiveness of sin uh, that is available to all who trust in him. And we, we pray that the Lord Jesus would become for us our salvation uh, and that we, we would all be able to rejoice uh, in this day, the day that the Lord has made. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy, uh, dear Father, to uh, meet like this, to worship and praise you for these things. But we uh, think of those around the world who don't have the same freedom as us. We think of the persecuted church, many countries around the world still where it's very difficult uh, and troublesome to be a Christian, either because, of, um, either because the state is against it or there is general uh, enmity against it. And Lord, we pray for Christians in situations like that today. We think of countries like North Korea, of Afghanistan, of Somalia, um, consistently uh, seen as the hardest places to be a Christian, or the, or the, the countries where the most persecution takes place. Uh, and we pray for believers there today, as perhaps they meet in secret, in fear of the authorities, uh, or perhaps as they are in captivity themselves for their faith. We do pray that you would uphold and strengthen those believers, and that they would know this victory that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, victory over sin uh, and the troubles of this life. Uh, we pray that you would help them to rejoice in the difficulties that they experience, knowing that their future is secure uh, and that one day they will spend eternity themselves there in your presence. And Lord, we thank you that that fact is true for all who are trusting in you. Uh, and so we pray again today that you would present yourself with us uh, and that we might be able to rejoice uh, and praise you uh, in this time together. Uh, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few moments, we're going to have um, a slide for the children coming up, so those who are projecting can prepare for that. Uh, but before I get to that, I just want to make a, a brief announcement. You will notice that the building is a little bit more full than we've uh, experienced it in recent weeks, and uh, it's a great joy to have lots of, lots of people here with us. Um, some faces that we've not seen for, uh, well, some faces that I've not seen ever, and so welcome to the guests and people who are visiting for the first time. And uh, there are some people we've not seen for over a year, and so it's really nice to have you guys back with us. In the next few weeks, we expect probably uh, more people will be coming back. And one of the things I just want to remind you of is that it takes actually quite a bit of work arranging the seating plan. And Malcolm and Margaret have done a lot of work this weekend getting things ready so that we can fit everybody in. They've done a lot of that work late last night, I mean late, late last night and early this morning. It's a big help to them organising the seating if you can register early. Uh, most people know that they're going to be coming to the, the Sunday service. If you can just sign up to the link on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, that will be a big help in them preparing uh, the room like this in future. So thank you for those who do register in a timely manner and I would ask you in future weeks, just when you see the emails come through, uh, just click the link there and then. Uh, and sign up if you can. That's a big help to those arranging things. Thank you. Now, uh, I've got a picture coming up on the screen. Uh, children, uh, well, I'm sure most of the adults know what these flowers are, but is there any of the children who are willing to put their hand up and uh, shout out what the name of this flower is? What are the names of these flowers? We've got one from Samuel. Any, any other children showing that, that they know what the names of these are? Oh, we've got one up here, yes. Uh, James, is it? William, sorry, William. Snowdrops, that's right. Is that what you were going to say, Samuel? Well done, okay. Snowdrops. Now, here's another question. We'll take a little poll. If you've seen some snowdrops since Christmas, 
I'm going to ask you to put your hands up now. The next question is, if you think you're going to see snowdrops before next Christmas, okay, put your hands up. Okay, so if you, first question is, if you think you've seen snowdrops since Christmas, put your hands up. When do snowdrops come out? Okay, lots of people voting for that one. If you think snowdrops are yet to flower and you'll see them before next Christmas, put your hands up now. One, okay. Hoyoon, obviously, not a botanist, okay. Um, <laughs> snowdrops come out early in the year. Don't worry, Hoyoon, I wouldn't have known that unless I was doing a talk like this, okay. Snowdrops come out early in the year, and you might guess that by the name. They're snowdrops, and sometimes, if the weather is just right, you might see snowdrops in the snow. Some people get really excited when they see the snowdrops because it's a sign of what's to come. You've been living through winter. And just cast your minds back to what winter is like. It's actually quite hard to do on a day like today when the sun's shining and the trees are budding and the birds are singing. But think what it's like in winter. The skies are are grey. It's dark when you're coming home from school. It's cold. It's wet every weekend. The floor is muddy and damp. The grass is dying. There's no green on the trees. They're just... Black sticks pointing up into the sky. Everything is is dark and dismal and dingy and dead. And you do get some nice bright sunny days, but even if they're bright and sunny, it's still freezing cold. And sometimes I cycle home from here, going home, and I've got my t-shirt on, my shirt, my jumper, my coat, a scarf and a hat and two pairs of gloves, and I'm freezing. And I'm cycling home thinking, you know, in summer... Some days, I cycle on with just a t-shirt on, and I'm still too hot. And you know that that will happen, but it's just so hard to imagine in the middle of winter when everything's so cold. And you're living through those cold, dark months, and then on the grass by your house, you see, hey, there's some snowdrops. The first flower you've seen since Christmas, the first little sign of life poking up through the frost, there are the snowdrops. And people get excited because they know, hey, if the snowdrops are here, what's coming next? The crocus, then the daffodil, then the blossom, then the bluebells, and then summer. When we see the snowdrops, we know that winter is on its way out and summer is coming. Those those sunny, happy, warm days are coming. And yet there's many more weeks of darkness and cold and wet and even snow to come. But you know the summer's coming. What is the world like that we live in? I I don't just mean nature now, I I mean the world in general. Even if you take a very realistic view about the world, you would say there's lots of good things. There's family, there's friends, there's food, there's sports, there's media, TV, lots of good things that we can enjoy. But there's also lots of bad things. Lots of harmful, damaging things. There's death, there's pain, there's poverty. There's arrogance and big egos. There's people who hurt you, there's bullies. There's all sorts of damaging things. And we wonder, are we ever going to get out of this situation? Are we we ever going to get past the, the death and the pain and the misery that this world seems to be stuck in? And then you see something that is like a little snowdrop. Someone who defeats death. Someone who brings life into this world of darkness. It's Jesus. Jesus dies 
and he rises from the dead. He defeats, he undoes all that is wrong with this world. He is like the snowdrop, the first sign of better things to come. Because he rose from the dead, we can know that we too will one day rise from the dead. And it might take a long time, just like when you see the snowdrops, there's many more weeks, even months to come before the summer arrives. And when we see Jesus, even though he's risen from the dead, there's many more years, perhaps even millennia, before he returns again and new life is given to us all. But it's a sign and it makes us hopeful. Death has been defeated. Life is on its way. There are better things to come. Just like we look to the snowdrops and know the summer is coming, we look to Jesus and know that our resurrection is coming. This is what Paul the Apostle says, just one verse. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first taste of what is to come. That's what we're here to rejoice in and give thanks to God for this morning. Jesus' resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. We're going to have another reading from God's Word now. We're going to read from John's Gospel, chapter 11. And I've asked Hannah if she would come and give us this reading. Thanks, Hannah. Happy Easter, everybody. It's fantastic to be here together. And um, um, so we're reading from John chapter 11, um, from verse 1 to 44. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking about his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, 
Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went with him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, 
his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Thank you, Hannah. Um, if you've got uh, preschool children who you would um, like to go to the creche, uh, now might be a good time to, to get them out to the creche. It'll be in the, in the yellow room, just at the end of the corridor. Um, please follow the one-way system as you take children out and return to your seats. Uh, we've got another song now, uh, a song that again picks up on this theme of the victory of Christ's resurrection um, and points as much uh, to what happened after the resurrection, Jesus' ascension into glory. Uh, as it does on the, on the resurrection itself. We're going to uh, sing Crown Him With Many Crowns. Again, I'd invite you to stand for this song.
it'd be helpful if you had John 11 in front of you now. Uh, we're going to be considering um, the words of those passages that was read. And I'm going to start really with the same question um, that was uh, given to us on, on Friday, if you were here on Friday with us. The question is, what sort of a saviour is Jesus? What kind of a saviour is he? Uh, what kind of a saviour do we need? And I'm going to try and focus on different answers from what you heard on Friday. Uh, two things uh, a saviour needs to be. One thing, it needs to be powerful, of course. Imagine a situation where you've got a country uh, where the leadership of the country are corrupt. They're, they're bad leaders. And the country, because of that bad leadership, turns into economic depression. Um, they fall into famine, perhaps. There is uh, political corruption. Uh, maybe the country is in the grip of war. Imagine what it would feel like to live in that country. Uh, the worry about whether you would be able to feed yourself and your family this weekend. The threat of violence come knocking on your door any moment. Now, if there is a leader who's going to come into that situation and bring about real change, the leader, the saviour, needs to have real power. No amount of journalism, no amount of rallying, no amount of campaigning will ever do any lasting change until there is a new person with power. There is a new person in charge of the military and the budget and the, the politics and the law. Until you've got real power, you can't make the lasting change. If we're going to have a saviour, we need one with real power, not just good sentiment. But as well as power, is power without love any good as a saviour? I would say not. You can, again, look at countries around the world and see countries where there are leaders with all sorts of might and strength. They've got political influence. They've got military power behind them. They've got money. They've got status. And... All sorts of people from the country will follow them because of the, the wealth and the security that they receive in that leader's wake. But over time it becomes clear that perhaps this leader is, for all of his strength, for all of his power, is actually something of a, a dictator, perhaps, in practice, even if not in name. You notice that the wealth that he has is never shared beyond the circle of his own friends. The political influence that he exerts never reaches beyond concerns in his own life. There is no real concern for the people in his country, the workers, the poor, those outside of political influence. A saviour, a powerful saviour without compassion is cold-hearted at best, but more often selfish and exploitative. We need a, a saviour who is powerful, but also who is loving, I would say. Of course, I'm not here this morning to talk to you about political leaders. I'm not here to present a political manifesto. I want to talk to you about Jesus. I want to present to you this simple fact that Jesus is both a powerful saviour, but also a saviour full of compassion. And those two things combined make him an eminently attractive saviour. Worth committing to. Worth following. Better than anyone else. And we're going to see those things in the way that Jesus deals with this family that he loves, Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. It, it serves as like a, a living parable of the way Jesus is a saviour to all of his people. And so that's why I've chosen uh, this passage to consider this morning. 
First, let me show you how Jesus is a powerful saviour and how that comes across in this passage, John 11. And before we jump straight to the obvious, which is the point at where Jesus gives life to a dead man, I want to just point out two other um, areas in which you see Jesus' power presented in this passage. Verse 3 and 4 are interesting. Verse 3, the sisters, when their brother Lazarus is sick, send word to the Lord. And it's interesting that they, they know, you see, the importance of Jesus' ministry. They know his fame and they know his, his, uh, something of his itinerary, his travels. And so they don't presume to push to the front of the queue with their problem. And they don't send a request to Jesus so much as just informing what's going on. Verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. Do with that what you will, Jesus, but the one that you love is sick. This is not a request, it's just informing. But interestingly, in verse 4, Jesus, it's like he already knows. He says, actually, this sickness will not end in death. Yes, I know he's sick, and I know what's going to happen next. They want to inform him, but it's as though Jesus was already expecting the messenger to arrive anyway. This situation isn't taking Jesus by surprise. It's not putting him on the back foot. And whatever action he's now going to do, he's not going to do it reactively. He's not just going to get things back to how they once were. Isn't that often how we come to Jesus in prayer? We're living our lives and things seem to be going well, things seem to be happy and good, and then some catastrophe hits and things go backwards. And and our prayer to Jesus is basically, get me back to where I was. Get me back to that last safe point. And it's interesting that when, perhaps in a similar sort of vein, the sisters send word to Jesus, get us back to this safe point. Jesus doesn't act straight away. And actually he waits He waits specifically so that by the time he arrives, Lazarus would be dead. Because you see, Jesus has got a bigger intention, a bigger purpose than just getting the sisters and their brother back to the last known safe point. He's not just interested in preserving the status quo. He's a saviour who's got something better to give to them. He's working out a more powerful salvation. He allows the difficulty, not not just for a reason for him to show off, not because he's only ever reactive, but because he's got a higher purpose in saving his people. We're going to think about what that purpose is. Um, uh, One way in which we see his power there. Another way we see his power is in the the interaction between Jesus and Martha when Jesus eventually arrives. Verse 20. The grieving sister rushes out to meet Jesus. And it's interesting to wonder what, what tone do you think verse 21 is spoken in? Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What tone is that spoken in? Is it, is it despair? If, if you'd been here, he, he would not have died. But now all is lost. Is it, is it anger? A mild rebuke, if you like. Jesus, if you had been here when we asked, he wouldn't have died. Or is it worship? Jesus, if only you had been here. If only you. You you are the one with the power. If only you had been here, he, he would not have died. I think verse 22 indicates that actually it's that last tone in which Mary, uh, Martha spoke these words. 
Martha recognises there is no one like Jesus in terms of power. And even the sickness that has led to death would not have been a match for Jesus. And now, even though the death has come, what a comfort it is to Mary to know that the one with all power is now there with her. Yes, her her brother is dead, but she knows that Jesus is not limited by the circumstances. She doesn't know really what he's going to do. It's interesting when Martha um, says in verse 22, I know now that God will give you whatever you ask. I don't think she's expecting there Jesus to raise her brother. I don't think she's saying, look, you can, you can fix this, you can bring him back. I think instead she's recognising, look, Jesus, if you were here, it wouldn't have happened. And now you are here, there is no one I would rather have alongside me in my moment of grief, in my moment of difficulty. Because you see, what, what Martha realises about Jesus is that he's not a, he's not a one-trick pony. He's not just a, a miracle worker. She's seen him perform many of those miracles, you can imagine. Healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind. She knows what he can do, but she knows that's not what he's limited to. And he's not bound by circumstances. Just because the man is now dead, just because grief has hit, just because it looks like the time has passed, it doesn't mean Jesus can be of no use anymore. She knows him to be a powerful saviour, who can act in a way that is just right in a way that she might not even know how to ask for. But whatever, whatever he asks, it will be given. Jesus is a powerful saviour that he's, that he's not limited by the circumstances in which he finds himself. And you know, you, you might find yourself in a similar situation to Martha. You, you come across this grief, this difficulty, this turmoil, and, and simply you don't know how to pray. But it's a comfort to know that Jesus, the one with all power, is there alongside you in this grief. And then the power, I think, of Jesus is most clearly stated in verse 23 to 26. Verse 23, Jesus responds to Martha and he says, your brother will rise again. Now this is, this is characteristic of John. It's, it's packed with ambiguity. Your brother will rise again. Well, when will that be? Now, of course, having read the whole story, and probably you know the story anyway, even before you arrived this morning, you're expecting Jesus to mean later today. In fact, in just a few moments. But what does Jesus actually say, and what does he mean? It's not clear. And so uh, Martha, in her response, says, yes, I, I know. He will rise again at the last day. We don't grieve like those who have no hope, if we were going to use New Testament language. Yes, he's dead, but but I know death is not the end. Don't mock Martha at this point for having weak faith. You know, some days that's about all the faith I can muster to know that death is not the end, that Jesus Christ will return, that there will be a resurrection. And in the moment of her grief, Martha does not lose sight of the promises of God that life will once again be given to the faithful, to the believing. Yes, one day he will rise again. I do not grieve as though I've lost him forever. But it still hurts. What is Jesus' response then all about in verse 25 and 26? I think the way Jesus' response in verse 25 links is that he's implying a question back towards Martha. Martha. 
It's as though he's heard what Martha has said about, yes, there is a hope that Lazarus will respond at the end. And now he wants to present her with this challenge. Martha, if you believe that Lazarus will rise again at the last day, let me ask you, how will that happen? Martha, what evidence have you ever seen that death will give up its victims? Martha, what evidence have you got that the curse and the consequences of sin will be undone? Martha, if you do believe that Lazarus is going to rise again, why do you believe it? What, what is the basis of your hope? I think that's the question that Jesus implies and he speaks the answer. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. It's as though Jesus is saying, look, if Lazarus' resurrection can happen at the end, it's only going to happen then because of me. But now, Martha, here I am today with you. What does that mean for what might be able to happen today with Lazarus? What sort of saviour is Jesus? Is he powerful? Here, we get the clearest statement of the power that Jesus can bring as saviour. He's bringing a power that raises his people from the dead. Whether that is the resurrection at the last day, or whether it's resurrection on the day that Jesus stands there at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. This is real power. To undo the greatest enemy. To undo the the greatest consequence of sin, which is death. And Jesus says, whenever that's going to happen, it's going to happen through me. I am the resurrection. That is the power that I bring to people. And not just for you, not just for Lazarus, but for all who will believe in me. Whoever believes in me, he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. That's the hope of Easter. That's what we're celebrating this morning. That we will one day rise from the dead. Death is not the end for us. It sounds wonderful. And perhaps, if, especially if you're an unbeliever, you wonder, how is it we can know? How can we be certain that this really will happen? It sounds too good to be true, and we all know if things are too good to be true, they, if they sound too good to be true, they probably are. How can we know that this is not just pie-in-the-sky thinking? How can we know it's not too good to be true? Interestingly, in John's Gospel, the way John recounts the way Jesus teaches and performs his miracles, he often accompanies these I am statements with a miracle to go alongside it. I am the bread of life. Jesus feeds the 5,000. I am the water of life, or I can give you water of life. Jesus turns the water into wine. I am the light of the world. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind man. I am the resurrection and the life. What miracle is going to accompany it? How are we going to know that Jesus is uh, is these things? In in John's Gospel, we get two evidences, actually. And they complement each other and they work with each other. One is the resurrection of Lazarus. It's as though in in his conversation to Martha, he has said, Martha... If I can do it at the end, can't I also do it today? And John presents the situation to the reader saying, look, if this is what Jesus can do today with Lazarus, can't you then also believe that it will happen for you at the end? Can't you also believe that he is the resurrection and the life at the last day? 
And so the resurrection of Lazarus is paired with the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus raises Lazarus to prove his power. Verse 39, take away the stone, he said. And interestingly, some of the details that John recounts about the way Lazarus was raised contrast with the way Jesus was raised. So you see, for example, the stone being taken away. But when Jesus was raised, it wasn't people who had to come and roll away the stone for Jesus. An angel of God came down and rolled it back. We read about that in Matthew's Gospel. When Lazarus is called out of the grave... People had to go and help him. The dead man came out, verse 44, with hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. But when Jesus came out of the grave, the grave clothes were folded up, left behind. He, he did it himself. He, he took them off. He, he folded them up and, and left them there. He'd finished with them. He didn't need them again. He didn't need to be helped. When Lazarus was raised, he was called out by Jesus. But Jesus laid down his own life of his own accord only to take it up again of his own accord. And Lazarus, of course, would die again. He was restored to life, you might say. He was brought back to that last safe point, if you like. And he would go on living and breathing and ageing and eventually die. But when Jesus raised, he was raised to new life. Totally new life. Where death no longer had a control over him. Where decay no longer had an influence on him. Where sin didn't have any claim upon him. And as the account teaches us of who Jesus is, it points us to look forward not to a resurrection that Lazarus experiences. It teaches us to look forward to the resurrection that Jesus experiences. The resurrection that Jesus experiences is the resurrection that he gives to his people. Now, there's a question that I want to raise that goes alongside this, that some might be asking, if Jesus really is all-powerful, if Jesus is the resurrection and life, if Jesus can do this for Lazarus, why can't he do it for me? Why can't he raise my friends and family? Why can't he raise my grandma? Why can't he raise my spouse? Why can't he raise my child from the dead? Why can't he protect us from death today? Why does he let us go through these difficulties if he really does have the power? Why doesn't he stop it now if the resurrection power is his? And the answer, I think, lies in the difference between these two resurrections. To raise Lazarus, yes, was to bring him back to his loved ones, but it was to bring him back to a world of suffering, a world of pain, a world of death. It was to bring him back into the same decay that he had just left. Lazarus would later die. Yet for Jesus, his resurrection was totally different. Yes, his humanity passed through the curtain of death and was raised to new life, free from those limitations that we experience. And what Jesus is offering you is not the resurrection that Lazarus experienced. He's offering you the resurrection that Jesus himself experienced. To live in a far greater, freer, higher way. Not in, a, in an unending descent of pain and ageing. But in the glorious freedom. In a creation that has been liberated from its bondage to decay. That was the resurrection Jesus experienced and it's the resurrection that we wait for.
Jesus has power as a saviour. But secondly, Jesus is a compassionate saviour. Jesus' power and his ability to give this resurrection raises yet another question. Okay, so if, if the resurrection that we're waiting for is yet to come, when Jesus returns, at the last day, if you like it, if you want to use Martha's words, does that mean that Jesus is basically unconcerned with the difficulties that we face now? Does he assume that because he's got the end in sight, then the journey doesn't really matter? Because we know what we're getting to, then what we face on the way is inconsequential. That might be an objection one could potentially raise at Jesus if all he had was power. Is he a saviour with all power but no love? Is he concerned with your griefs and difficulties? Well, this account of the raising of Lazarus oozes with the love of Jesus Christ. And the answer to that question is simply no. Jesus is a saviour who is full of compassion alongside his power. You see it at face value, the love of Jesus is plainly stated. Let me take you through, again, just quickly through the chapter, pointing out some verses. Verse 3, the sisters send word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. That's the basis on which they send their information. Lord, he's the one that you love. Verse 5, it's repeated. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 11, Jesus calls him our friend. And then in verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. When they see Jesus weeping at the grave of Lazarus with with Mary alongside him, they say, see see how he loved him. And in verse 33, Jesus has been deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now there's been much debate about what exactly Jesus was moved by, what he was troubled by. Uh, The the centre of that that debate comes from the fact that normally this, this Deep um, movement of spirit is, a, is an emotion that is linked with anger or frustration. And so the question is, well, well, what has made Jesus angry? Why is it that he wept? But if you take the verse um, at face value, you can't avoid the fact that actually at least part of what has caused Jesus to be moved in spirit and troubled is the beginning of the verse, when Jesus saw her weeping. Jesus sees the tears of his own friend of his own dear friend Mary he sees her crying he sees her grief and he mourns with her he mourns with those who mourn he weeps with those who weep surely he took up our infirmities surely he carried our sorrows what sort of saviour is Jesus he's a loving saviour he's a saviour who feels the needs of his people He's a saviour who has experienced the same temptations and difficulties as you experience. He's a sympathetic saviour. But alongside his sympathy, the passage also shows us something else. His love is seen more clearly when you realise the cost involved for Jesus. Back in verse 8, the disciples recognise, Jesus, if you go back to Bethany... Bethany near Jerusalem. You're so close to Jerusalem, you're so close to the leaders, this is a risk to your life. Rabbi, a short while ago the Jews were trying to stone you and yet you're going back there. And in verse 16, Thomas recognises that to go with Jesus is to be prepared to go and die with Jesus. And in the bit that we we didn't read, we stopped at verse 44, but if we'd have carried on, verse 46... 
Some people who witnessed the raising of Lazarus went to the Pharisees, told them what had happened. And then verse 49, Caiaphas says, you do not realize it's better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish. Because of what Jesus does for Lazarus, this reignites the Jewish leader's hatred of him. And it directly leads to Jesus' own arrest and therefore crucifixion. For Jesus to love Lazarus, for Jesus to give him life from the dead, is to lay down his own life for Lazarus. He knows that going to Bethany is going to be the death of him. Jesus is not risking his life here. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Jesus is laying down his life. He knows exactly what is about to happen. And he goes and does it for him. And in this way, Jesus' love for Lazarus is a picture, a living parable of Jesus' love for us, his people. The life Jesus gives to us, the the promise of sharing his resurrection life, is only available if, if he first lays down his life for us. The peace that he offers us is only available if he first endures the wrath of God. Life is only available if he endures death. What sort of saviour is Jesus? Is he all power but no love? How could he say that? Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. Is Jesus unconcerned about your difficulties and griefs? Is he not bothered because, look, you've got the promise of heaven uh, and that should be enough to keep you going? Uh, You just plod on through the difficulties of life. Is that how Jesus treats you? Not at all. In fact, so much so, the salvation that he offers, the salvation that he speaks of to Martha, is not just resurrection at the last day. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. The salvation that he offers begins now. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. There is a sense in which the life to come is already granted to you here today. The peace with God. The presence of his spirit alongside us. The power of the spirit working through us to defeat sin. And the blessings of glory that we will one day enjoy are all ours to enjoy now. They're given to us. They're reserved in heaven for us. The life starts now that Jesus offers. I want to close with a third and final emphasis that the passage presents to us. We've seen the power of Jesus. We've seen the love of Jesus. But to see his power and love is not enough. To to see it and know of it is not all that is being presented to us in this passage. The key is to believe in him. And belief is a a huge part of the narrative here. Um, Verse 5. Verse... verse, um, Sorry, uh, belief is a huge part of the narrative because it answers one of the most perplexing questions. One of the perplexing questions is, why is it that Jesus waited? So he gets this message that Lazarus is sick, and instead of going to deal with him, he waits, he stops where he is. And you've got to ask the question, Jesus, why did you do that? Why wouldn't you just go straight away and help Lazarus? Why did you allow him to die? And uh, interestingly, in verse 5 and 6, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, Yet, in the NIV, um, that word yet could really be translated therefore. In fact, because Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, because he loved them, 
He stayed where he was two more days. It was because of his love for him that, that, he, that he stayed behind. What was his purpose in that? You see it more plainly in verse 14 and 15. Verse 15, for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Jesus' whole purpose is to get people to believe in him. When he meets Martha, um, he speaks to Martha, I am the resurrection of the life. And, and his question that follows is, do you believe this? Do you believe I am the one with this power? Um, verse 40, the, Jesus said to Mary and Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus' emphasis that he keeps pushing back on the, on the, on the sisters is, are you going to believe? And then in his prayer, verse 42, he ends his prayer by saying, I've prayed this so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus delays his involvement in order to give people greater reason to believe in him. Because by waiting until Lazarus dies, Jesus is able to perform a far greater miracle. And the promise of resurrection and life in verse 25 and 26 is crucially only to those who believe in him. Yes, Jesus is offering resurrection. Yes, Jesus is offering life. But he's offering it to those who believe in him. And the question is, do you believe in him? I want to emphasise that crucial little word. Do you believe in him? Not just believe him as though he's offering a system for you to follow or he's just telling you some things that happen in the background, whether you believe them or not, like a, like a psychologist might try to do, for example. He's not just getting you to believe him. These are things that are true. He's getting you to believe in him. It's, it's really helpful that when Martha responds, her response is not, yes, yes, Lord, I know you can do anything. I believe you have power. Her response is, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. I believe something about who you are, not just about what you can do. And her trust, her dependence is not on Jesus' power or ability, it's upon Jesus as a person. She believes in him. Jesus is offering himself in this passage. And he's asking, do you believe that the only way to receive resurrection and life, whether that's now or in the future, is to receive it through me? And to believe in him is not just to follow a set of cheap teachings. It's not just to, to join yourself to his church. It is to depend upon him as the only way, the only source of resurrection and life. It is to join yourself to him like Thomas did, and to say that wherever he goes, I will go. I'm willing to go and die with him. Because quite frankly, what else is worth having apart from him? That's what it means to believe in him. To know that he is worth more than anything else. And to join yourself inseparably to him. It's to believe that he's the Christ, the one who is the son of God, who was to come into the world to die in my place. Whose resurrection is my guarantee of future resurrection. Perhaps you are one who is believing in Christ this morning and I encourage you, I just remind you, your belief is not in a system or a list of theology or doctrines. Your belief is in a person. Your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and your aim is to know him more deeply. And perhaps if you don't believe, I want to challenge you. Where else are you going to find this great gift of salvation? Where else are you going to get resurrection and life? There is nowhere else to find it apart from in Jesus Christ. He is powerful to give it. He is compassionate.
to those who believe in him. Let's pray to close. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for all that you are, for all that you revealed yourself to be. We know so well that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And we see in your life so clearly that love worked out in practice. You loved those who were around you. You loved your disciples. You loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. You loved them to the end. You you died for them. And we know that in in this example, in the way that you, you loved directly those who were face to face with you, it was a picture of your love for all those who would believe in you. We thank you for your love towards us. We thank you for the power of your resurrection life and the promise that we have of sharing in that resurrection with you one day, at the last day, when you return. We look forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. But help us. Help us to believe in you. Help us not to be distracted by other uh, things that might take our faith away from you. Help us to fix our eyes on you and grow more like you, to love you more deeply each and every day. And help us to share this truth with those that we know, those we live with, those in our neighbourhoods. Because there is nowhere else that resurrection life can be found apart from in you. We praise you and thank you for these things that we've been thinking about this morning. We rejoice in the victory that you have been granted. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.